And go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to continue our study in Romans by studying verses 18 through 23. Romans chapter 1, book of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The king has pardoned you. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter once asked his congregation, if you could imagine yourself standing at the gallows during a royal execution and hearing those words, the king has pardoned you, what would your reaction be? Well, it would probably depend on how you saw your circumstances at the given moment. If you thought yourselves just an innocent bystander at the event, you're just part of the crowd, then those words would probably offend you. Right? The, the idea that you would need a royal pardon as an innocent person at an execution would be a little disturbing. You might even just, just even the possibility that that would be suggested is offensive. But if you were the one who had committed the capital offense, if you were being prepared to be hanged, these are the four sweetest words you could ever hear. See, the good news of the announcement of pardon could only fully be appreciated if you understood that you had bad news of the situation that you're in. That's the Apostle Paul's argument as he starts his letter in the book of Romans. We, we studied a couple weeks ago, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the announcement of God's powerful salvation, the revelation of God's saving righteousness by faith. This is the gospel. The, the word gospel means good news. Paul says that this is good news. And, and, and this announcement brings the question, do we really need good news? Or maybe more important, how desperately do we need good news? When you and I look at our lives, do we say, yes, I have a need for God's saving righteousness? See, and so what Paul is going to do logically here as he moves on from verse 17 is he's going to move from the announcement of God's saving righteousness in verses 16 and 17 to the demonstration of our need for God's saving righteousness, starting in verse 18 through chapter, until chapter 3. In other words, Paul wants to make sure we can clearly answer the question, why do we, why do you, why do I, why do we really need good news? Why do we need the good news of the gospel? And so Paul starts in verse 18. If you look at that 18, he starts by saying, for, or for you see, we have some really bad news. This, this, this announcement of God's saving righteousness is good news for you see, we have some real bad news we need to realize. We are not the innocent bystanders at the gallows. We are those who are convicted. And so we need God's saving righteousness. We need the gospel. We need some good news. But why? Paul gives us three reasons here in our text this morning. He says that we need the good news of the gospel because we're all in peril. That we need the good news of the gospel because we are all without excuse. And we need the good news of the gospel because we are all guilty of rejecting God. Let's look at, let's look at the, the first reason here, why we need this good news of the gospel. Paul starts in verse 18 by showing that we're all in peril. So the, in verse 16 and 17, the gospel is the good news of God's saving righteousness revealed by faith. For, or for you see, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's ask some questions about this verse. First of all, what does he mean by wrath? What, what is wrath? Not, not what do I think it means or how do I want to define it this morning or what does wrath mean to you or how does religious tradition have used that word? But what did Paul mean when he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Paul is a Jewish man trained in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. He would understand this idea of God's wrath to be God's holy and just indignation poured out against sin. Notice the way that Paul describes wrath. He modifies it multiple ways in this, in this sentence. It's God's wrath. It's wrath that will occur on the final judgment that's revealed already. It's wrath. It's a holy wrath from heaven. It's wrath that's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is not just some emotional outburst because you got offended by something someone, or something someone said. This is not like the, the fickle nature of the Greek deities who, who, who would just be temperamental on any given day. This is a holy, heavenly wrath. The good God who created the world and who created the world is very good. God, this God loves all that is right and good and just according to his holy and moral character. That same God is consistent with his moral character than to justly oppose with, and demonstrate wrath against everything that is opposed to that holy and moral character, to justly oppose all that is unjust, all that is evil, all that is sinful. We see this throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. We see God's hatred of sin and God's judgment for sin. We see that from Noah's flood to Sodom and Gomorrah to the continual reminder of Israel's need for temple sacrifices all the way to Israel's exile. But not to think of the, the, the way that God worked in the Old Testament is different from the New. We see the same idea in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament idea. We see this in the message of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The, the, one of those popular verses out there, right, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, here's the thing. Most people stop there and don't read through the end of the discourse. If you read to the end of the discourse and you see how it concludes... It concludes with this statement. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, he contrasts believe and obey, so to obey is to believe. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What Paul is saying here in Romans 1 is just restating what Jesus had said. So it's clear that this, what this wrath is. It's God's holy and just indignation poured out against sin. But see, in our cultural context today, there's some other questions that we should ask. And one of the questions that our culture would ask of this is, is God right to be wrathful? We understand, I understand that that's what the Bible describes, but, but is God right to be wrathful? How can a loving God be described as having wrath? See, that comes into sharp conflict with our culture, right? So our, our culture would say that if, you, if something is good and something is loving, then it is impossible for that same thing to, to be wrathful, that, that love and wrath are opposites of one another. So that the same God who so loved the world cannot be the same God whose wrath remains. That, they, that our culture would say that doesn't, that doesn't compute. There's even some forms of Christianity would say that doesn't compute and you have to get rid of one or the other. 
that would object to songs like that we sing of in Christ alone, the idea of God's wrath being satisfied, that, 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 that can't be in the song. But just consider for a moment that by our own logic and even our own behavior, that all of us, and even our culture would recognize that if there is such a thing as a good God and a loving God, that good and loving God must also be a wrathful God against all evil, injustice, and sin. I mean, first of all, just think about how our culture reacts to ideas of injustice. We've talked a lot about today, right? It's constantly in the news headlines. Whether it's criminal injustice or racial injustice, or political injustice, the reaction by everybody, both political parties, by people from all ideologies, when there's an encountering of a perceived injustice, what's the reaction? Wrath, anger, outrage, right? Sometimes they create more injustice just by the way that they respond to injustice, right? See, we can question the reasons for such a wrathful reaction. We can debate whether that injustice is real or perceived. We can discuss if, if their reaction was appropriate. But the very fact that this is a near universal cultural reaction to perceived injustice, that there's a, there's a near universal reaction of anger and, and, of, and, of, and of, uh, uh, of outrage and of wrath means that there is something internal in us and something inherent in us that recognizes that the right response to injustice is wrath. The right response to injustice is to oppose it, right? That, that, that whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, there's something internal with us that recognizes that. But it's not just that, that justice and wrath go hand in hand, but love and wrath go hand in hand as well. You may say, no, love. Love and wrath? How many Valentine's cards do you see with the word wrath in it? But see, we, we don't really believe that wrath is the opposite of love. Not, not, we may intellectually think that, but we don't really believe that in our own relationships. Th think about your reaction when someone you love, you love, is being destroyed. They're being destroyed by their addictive behavior or they're being destroyed and ravaged by some cancerous disease, or, or they're being destroyed by the oppression and abuse of another. What does love prompt? What does love do? Love doesn't just shrug its shoulders. Love doesn't say, yeah, love doesn't, doesn't ever oppose anything, and so I, get just, I guess that's too bad. Love doesn't shrug its shoulders. Love acts. Love acts in opposition to those things. Love acts in wrathful, at times, opposition to things that threaten what you love. Because wrath is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. The more you love your family, the more you will oppose that which endangers it. So, so, so how is, can we as a culture deny the, the connection between justice and wrath, deny the connection between love and wrath, while at the same time we, we very inherently demonstrate that, that, that those connections exist in our own lives? See, not only is it right for God to be wrathful, if God were not wrathful against sin that opposed his moral character, then God would not be just and God would not be loving. In fact, 
Imagine, as Pastor Bob said several months ago, imagine if God were not in all of his sovereignty, in all of his character, imagine if God were not opposed to what is evil and just, unjust, and sinful. It's not God. So so we see that God has holy and just indignation against sin, which is called wrath. And it's right for God to be wrathful against sin and injustice and evil. But here's the dilemma that Paul then brings up in Romans. Who deserves that? Who deserves that wrath? And Paul says that that wrath, the wrath that's going to be fully known in the final judgment is already now revealed to be against all what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, So who's being described here? Who is included? Well, it's including anyone and everyone who has ever, ever committed any act or word or thought of ungodliness. Anyone who's ever experienced any lack of reverence and worship towards God as he deserves. Okay, that's quite a few people. It includes anyone and everyone who has ever committed any act, not just of ungodliness, but of unrighteousness. Any violation of, of God's law towards our fellow man, any violation of God's law in, 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 our, in our treatment towards God, anyone who suppresses the truth of God by choosing our sin rather than the worship and obedience of our creator. See, in other words, who deserves God's wrath? It's not just, see, the, the, the tendency is to say, it's those people over there. It's those people doing those things over there. It's those people that, that I read about in the news. Paul says, no, it's all of us. It's we all do. That's Paul's argument in Romans, that, that we are all in the same sinking ship. So on the one hand, we're thankful that God is holy. We're thankful that God is just, that he values justice, and he's a loving God that opposes all that is sinful and unjust and evil. And on the other hand, we see the problem that Paul's pointing out, that the ungodliness and unrighteousness is not just out there in those other people, it's us too. It includes you and includes me. That word all is in the text. We, we'd love to just take that word all out, but it's all, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness God opposes. Nothing will be overlooked. Nothing will be missed. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be held accountable. Every little lie we tell, every little selfish motive we have, every little lustful thought we entertain, every envious look we give, every lazy hour we waste, every demeaning, demeaning statement we make, all the ungodly and unrighteous thoughts and words and actions of man, of yours, yours and mine, will be revealed and judged in the revelation of God's wrath. That's why Paul says, do you see that there's some bad news? That's why we need good news. That is why we need the gospel of God's saving righteousness. We all need the gospel because we all rightly deserve God's wrath. Only when you understand the bad news of our perilous situation under God's wrath, can you fully appreciate the good news why the gospel is so good? Because the good news is that situation is 100% correctable, 100% curable, 100% able to be changed. No, I am not an infomercial. This is what God's word says, right? And it's not by something we need to try to do. It's not by making three easy payments of $29.99, right? It's not something we need to do. It's the good news. It's something God has already done for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, look back there at verse 18. We see that the wrath of God is revealed, but that's following something else that God said is also revealed. Look back at 17. What else has God revealed? His righteousness, a righteousness, right? For the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's wrath, and the reason that the gospel is good news because he's provided the righteousness that we need to escape that wrath. 
That's the good news. And in fact, this whole argument is, is, is that God has revealed not only the guilty situation that we as sinners are in, but he said how we can be made righteous, not by anything we can do, but purely by faith. That's the whole argument. He starts in that in verses 16 and 17. He spends the rest of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3 trying to really make sure we understand our condition. And look where he's driving to. Turn over to Romans 3. He starts with the gospel. He shows our sinful and our, our, our perilous condition. And he's going back to this good news in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but despite this fact of our condition under God's wrath, but now, again, the righteousness of God has been manifest, has been revealed apart from the law and the prophets, though the, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we need a righteousness. We need someone else's righteousness because we don't live enough righteous. We're not righteous. We're sinners. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified and are declared right. So all are sinners, but all can be declared right by his grace as a gift, not by what we can do, as a free gift of what Christ has already done for us in his death and resurrection. Through the redemption, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Big word. But if we don't understand that big word, we don't understand the whole argument of what Paul's been doing. Paul is establishing that we're under wrath, and what propitiation means is that we have a wrath bearer. We are under wrath, and we have someone who bore that wrath for us. That's what that word propitiation means, is that Jesus is the one who bore the wrath that we deserved in our place as our substitute on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness that in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just, true to his moral character, just and loving and good and holy, and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ, to justify and declare us righteous and innocent. Do you see how that argument only makes sense? It's a great verse. It's a great verse to memorize, but it only makes sense in the context of understanding the perilous bad news of our condition as sinners under God's wrath. It's like a jeweler who shows a diamond, right? You can, you can see the diamond, but you, you see the brilliance of the diamond in a whole different way when the jeweler puts it up against that black background. Right? When, the, when the jeweler puts it up against the black background, you see it's almost like a whole different diamond. It's the same diamond. You just couldn't see the fullness of its brilliance before until it was contrasted with that black background. It's the same thing with the gospel. See, Paul says we need the good news of the gospel. Why? When he lays the gospel against the black velvet background of our condition as sinners under the wrath of God, we see the brilliance and the glory of that good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. And then the rest of our passage this morning, what he's going to do is in verse 19 and in verse 21, he's going to go on, and again, he's going to say for, it's actually a different word. I, I like how the, the New King James would translate this. It says because, look at chapter 1, verse 19, and verse, chapter 1, verse 21, it says for or because. What Paul goes on to do is give two different reasons, two different reasons why God's wrath is valid, why we fully deserve it. He's not just saying, yes, you're under God's wrath, but here's why you would fully see why we deserve God's wrath. He gives us two reasons. First, he says that we're under God's wrath 
And it's, God's wrath is completely valid because we are all without excuse. Look at verse 19 with me. For what can, we can, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So there is a knowledge about God, Paul says, that is plain or that is evident to all people. Notice here, though, notice Paul doesn't say it's just possible for all people or accessible to all people, that if someone is logical enough or observant enough or intellectual enough, that they could figure out these proofs that God has left and know these things about God. That is not what Paul's saying here. It's not that what is known about God is possibly accept, accessible to people, but this knowledge is plain to them, is evident to them. Everyone has it. Everyone's born with it, this knowledge. Why? Because it's not about our ability to figure these truths out. It's that God has revealed himself. He took the initiative to reveal these things about himself and the, and the world that he's created. Let's look at this, what kind of knowledge this is. Look there at verse 20 where he says, for, or for in this way, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. That's a long sentence. It's a, it's a very long, complicated sentence. If you're writing that for your English class, they'd say, uh, run on sentence, make it into two sentences, right? It's the same thing also in Greek. English and Greek, it's a very complicated sentence. But you can boil the sentence down into the subject and the verb. Oh, grammar, I know, grammar helps. You, you, subject and verb. What's the subject? God's invisible attributes. What's the verb? Have been clearly perceived. That's the point. A lot going on there. But subject and verb, God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. Here's Paul's point. God has made the invisible visible. Subject, verb. He's made the invisible to be visible. There are invisible things, attributes about God, God who is spirit, truths about his eternal power, his divine nature, these truths about who God is and his nature as, as sovereign and as eternal as the creator. But these are things that we can't see with our eyes, right? How many of you guys have seen physically and visibly, God's attributes. No, right? He's spirit. But God has taken what is invisible and he's made them to be able to be clearly seen, visible to the eyes in a physical way. How? Paul tells us two different ways. First of all, he's made the invisible to be visible in a temporal way, in, in an in-time way, since the creation of the world. You see that there? The God who's eternal has revealed himself in time. In every time, in every time since the creation of the world until today, God has made himself visible. In other words, there is not a person who has ever existed on the face of the earth who did not clearly perceive these truths about God. Second, not only has God made himself visible in a temporal way, he's made himself visible in a physical way, being understood in the things that have been made. And under, in other words, God has taken what is invisibly true about his attributes and made them visible in the universe and the creation that he created. I mean, just start from the very fact that there is a universe, right? We can all agree, whether you're a Christian here or not, and in fact, if you're visiting with us here and, and you're not, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. We're glad that you're visiting with us. But we can all agree on something, right? The universe exists. Can we all agree on that? You probably, even you, and you're not, and, and, and no matter what worldview or background your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers come with, you know, we're not in the matrix. There is a universe. The universe exists, right? There is something rather than nothing. And we have to ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? 
Because we also all understand and agree that something doesn't come to, into existence from nothing. Right? We, we, you're not going to walk out of church today and go, man, I hope that I don't walk to my car and suddenly a raging tiger blinks into existence next to my car. Any of you got thinking about that today? <laughs> like I wasn't beforehand. Um, but, but we don't think that way, right? At least we, we, don't, we don't understand that nothing just pops into existence completely uncaused. We understand that for something to exist, there has to be a cause of that existence. So the very fact that there is a universe and that universe exists and that we exist in that universe leads to the very understanding, at least internally, that there is a cause of that universe, a creator of that universe, a God who is over and outside our universe, whose eternal power and divine nature created us. But that's not all that creation reveals. Everywhere we look, as Kevin read in the beginning of Psalm 19, there's evidences uh, that the world of the universe has been created by a good and creative God. See, if you walk along the beach and you see some ripples and some little ripple designs in the sand, you might think that's just just a, a random, random, random you know, design uh, by the waves, right? But if you walk further down the beach and you see a giant heart that says, Craig loves Amanda, you're not going to say, wow, look what the waves just accidentally did. Right? There's no way. It, it, was, it was designed to communicate love and affection. There's a design and a purpose there. That's the kind, type of good design we see in every part of the world that we live in. Have you ever thought about the, the perfect situation God created for there to be life on this planet? That if our galaxy wasn't in the exact shape that it's in, if it's any more or any less elliptical, there would be no life on this planet. If our solar system was any other place in the Milky Way galaxy, there'd be no life on this planet. If our planet was not exactly where it is right now in our solar system, not only our distance from the sun, but also because of, of, of Jupiter's placement and pulling in asteroids, there would be no life on this planet. If our atmosphere wasn't perfect, if our orbit wasn't perfect, if our tilt wasn't perfect, if our location wasn't perfect, then guess what? There'd be no life on this planet. This is all by a good design, by a good creator. We see this good design in, the, in God's creation of the natural world around us. I mean, think about the genius behind a water cycle that can move millions of gallons of water. Think about what kind of truck and, 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 and trucks you'd have to use to try to do to bring the water from the ocean up to the mountains, to the type of energy it would take to freeze that water and then melt it at the perfect time to bring it down to the valley that needs it in the summer. But we have a God that we see this design of, of evaporating water into gas floating that gas inward in the form of clouds, dropping it as snow, storing it as a perfect white snow that does not melt until the, the, the hottest time of the year to provide water for the entire area. Amazing, right? Think about the power of a thunderstorm. Think about the beauty of a sunset. Think about the intricacy of a seed. When, when I used to, to teach and take hikes, hikes up to, to, to Nelder Grove and you look at the, the giant sequoias, and, and you, you, you look at the amazing, the, the, the largest living beings on the, the, the face of the earth and all the intricacies, and then you, you shake out one of the, the cones and you pull out a seed and you say everything that's needed is in there. That, that is more complicated, more intricately designed than any microchip we have. Everything you need to make that entire giant sequoia is created in the DNA in that seed. It's amazing. 
about the design of a woodpecker? My old boss pointed out that, that as much as we get annoyed with woodpeckers, just the amazingness of God's design, the fact, did you know that the woodpecker's tongue wraps around its, its, its head, wraps around its brain, so that when it's pecking that hole in your house, thinking that there's food in there, but it's not, it doesn't smash its brain, and I know you wish it would, but God t- designed it so perfectly so that it's cushioned, that if its tongue's not reaching for the bugs, it's, it's wrapped around its head to give like a, a, a safety helmet to it. I mean, amazing. How, how does that evolve? It doesn't. Everywhere you look around in the world around us, you see the good design of God's creation. I remember in college, I was a, I was a cell biology and molecular, uh, and, and molecular biology student. And, and in our molecular biology class, we had an atheist professor. And, but as he's looking at how our bodies operate on a cellular level, he just couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself to say, isn't it amazing how science designed this? Isn't science amazing how science put this together so perfectly? He couldn't help himself. Like a hundred times during the semester or the quarter, he he couldn't help but to say, it's like science was a person, a good person, and a creative person, and a sovereign person who created this all perfect. God has made his invisible attributes to be visible in the universe he created. But before we get too far off, Look back at Paul's argument. Paul is not saying from all this, if you're logical enough or you're observant enough or you study science enough, then you'll be able to figure this out. That's not what Paul says. Paul says we already have this. We already in our hearts have clearly perceived these truths. It's clearly perceived. And none of us, not one, has rightly responded in the right worship of God. So every person Every single person, whether a theist or deist or atheist, everyone has perceived this knowledge, and every person has subsequently and simultaneously suppressed and distorted that knowledge and rejected the God who's revealed himself in his creation. See, see look at what Paul says the purpose of this, this revelation is. Look at the end of verse 20. You see the, the so or the so that there? So that they are without excuse. That's a purpose statement. The purpose of God's revelation of himself and creation is not so that if someone's smart enough, they'll be convinced and believe. That's not the purpose. No, the purpose of God's revelation is to show that we have no excuse. No one can come before God and plead ignorance. There can be no, I didn't knows. We are all responsible and culpable for our rejection of God. See, our knowledge of God through his creation is limited. It's enough to hold us responsible, but not enough to save. Because we need more than something we can see with our eyes. We need someone who can change our sinful hearts. See, here's Paul's argument. Paul's argument is we have all perceived God in his creation, all of us. But the rest of Romans 1 through 3 shows us that none of us, when we saw that, none of us was willing to believe. We've all sinfully rejected God in our hearts. That our perceiving God was simultaneous with our rejection of God. So we're without excuse, and we need some good news. We need the gospel because we are all without excuse for our refusal to rightly worship God. That's why the gospel is such good news, because none of us were convinced by God's creation. God took the initiative and we rejected him. And God said, I'm not done. And he took the initiative again, not just to show us, but to change us through sending his son, Jesus Christ. 
See, we can try to maybe explain away creation, and we do through alternate religious explanations or secular, the secular religion of, of macroevolution. But God didn't just leave us in our rejection, but that he sent us not then just to show us himself, but to change our hearts so that we could actually see him and believe in him through sending Jesus to live the perfect life, to die on the cross and to, to and rise again on the third day. And, and where is God's creation through, 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 through God's revelation of himself through creation was limited to, to, to leaving us without excuse. We see that, that God shows his, not just his, his, his creation power, but his love for us, his grace for us, and his transforming power through sending his son for us. Now, now when I was studying this section, I did ask the question, what, is that, what does that mean for us as Christians? It, 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 I get the point. We're without excuse. That's the what. What's the so what, right? How does this apply to me as a Christian? And I think there's a couple of different points here. First of all, here's the point that Paul's making. The point is that we, can, we cannot point at our non-Christian family members and our non-Christian friends and our non-Christian neighbors and say, oh, come on, why don't you see this? Because Paul says, you didn't see it either. You and I didn't see it either. We don't see it now because we're smarter or more religious or we're more moral. We see it now purely by God's grace working in our hearts. We need to recognize that the reason we can see these things now and glorify God who's our creator is not because I am better or more intellectual or more religious. It's because of God's grace in our hearts. He's opened our eyes and given us new hearts so that when we see the power of the thunderstorm, when we see the glorious picture of the night sky, we, will, we can say, how great is our God? But not because I'm more religious, but because of how great his grace was to open my eyes that I can see these truths. So it should, it should cause us to glory in God's grace. Second of all, we should, we should, these verses should give us confidence in God's justice. See, when we understand the fullness of God's wrath, there, there's a, a time when even we as Christians struggle and say, is that, is, that, is that really just? When we think about God's wrath and the fullness of that in an eternal, inescapable hell, we ask, is that fair? Is that just? How can that be? And Paul shows us here that no one, not a single individual who will face God's wrath on the day of judgment will be able to say, I didn't know. No one can plead ignorance. No one can have an excuse for their rejection of the God of the universe. And it also reminds us that we were in that situation. That was us. And then I'm not out of that situation because of something I did because of God's grace to me. And that's the third application that we can take from this as well, is that we, this reminds us that we were those who were blind, but now we see. We were the ones who had no excuse. We were the ones who rejected God in his creation, but now we've experienced God's mercy. And when we realize these things, when we realize that light about our own condition of what we were and what we are now is only by his grace, it should respond how Paul responds throughout Romans in the sense that, that we have a debt to others. Not that they try to make them more intellectual like us or more religious like us or more, more observant like us. No, we need to help them experience the grace and mercy that we have received in the gospel. No one gets saved by seeing the errors in evolution. But when they encounter the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, they begin to see the creation around them in whole new ways. So Paul says God's wrath is revealed. 
And this wrath is fully valid, first of all, because we are without excuse. And then he gives his second and final reason here. For, he says again, for in verse 21, for this reason. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So despite God's revelation of himself, although everyone has known God in, in a way that leaves them without excuse, although they knew God, maybe they had thought about God, the existence of God, maybe they'd shown some politeness to the idea of God, maybe they'd even engaged in religious practices dealing with God. But ultimately, Paul says there's ultimately only two responses to God. Either we honor and worship him as God, or we're going to honor and worship something, something or someone else in our rejection of God. See, we may be thinking we're wise. We may be thinking that because of our moral efforts that we do and the good we do with our family or the good we do in our community or the religious activities that we're involved in, that when we die and we stand before God, that he's going to declare us innocent of his wrath. But Paul says, that, Paul says that's not the case, that that kind of thinking is just foolishness. There's a spiritual blindness that we have to be aware of. It's like the story I've heard about the scientist Percival Lowell. Have you heard this story? He was a scientist that lived in the early 1900s, and he became convinced that there was intelligent life on Mars. He conducted research on Mars using the most powerful telescope available to him in his days, and he made a detailed map of the Martian surface. He saw this matrix of canals through his telescope that he believed to be the lifeline of a Martian society, and he drew out detailed maps of these, this canal structure of, of, of what he saw through his telescope of this Martian society. Lowell became the leading scientific expert regarding life on Mars. Here's the problem, that when Mariner 4 and Mariner 9 was fi were finally sent to take pictures of Mars, none of Lowell's maps were actually visible through real pictures. No one could see those things except Percival Lowell. Now, did he make it all up? No. It seems that he suffered from a rare eye disorder so that when he looked through his telescope, the eye reflecting off the lens actually was reflecting the back of his eyeball. He couldn't tell the difference between the Martian surface he was looking at and the blood vessels that were imposed on that picture from the back of his eye because of his condition. So Lowell spent his scientific career, years upon years of mapping the blood vessels on the back of his eyeball. He placed his entire scientific reputation on this misunderstanding, and he thought he discovered life on Mars, and it was just a picture of his eye. See, when it comes to our standing before God, if we think we're good enough, if we think we're religious enough, if we think we're moral enough, if we think that all this stuff about God's wrath doesn't apply to me, Paul says we're fooling ourselves. We're spiritually blind. We're mapping the back of our eyeball. And he says this, he emphasizes this. He says this three different ways in verse 21 and 22. He says human reasoning has become futile in its thinking. Mankind's foolish hearts were darkened. Humanity has become fools. The mind, the heart, the whole of our thoughts, emotions, and will have become corrupt. Why? Why is this? What's the heart of Paul's argument here? 
Well, look at the contrast between the main verb in verse 21 and the main verbs in verses 22 and 23, where Paul says, they did not honor, and I think the NIV translation and the CSB translation are helpful there, where it says they did not glorify and give thanks to God. Instead, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. You see the contrast that Paul is setting up there? Let me, let me abbreviate, abbreviate that. They did not glorify God, but instead exchanged the glory of God. That's the heart of the argument there. They did not glorify God, but exchanged the glory of God. For what? For the worship of someone or something else. You see, Paul here is getting to the root of what sin is, the essence of what sin is. And it's sin is not primarily about ethics. It's, sin is not primarily about a violation of the, the law of man or the violation of the law of God. Sin is all about worship. Sin at its root is a failure to honor and glorify and give thanks to and worship God. And, and, and this reflects a rejection of God by refusing to worship him as he rightly deserves. You see, all of us are worshipers. Every man, every woman, every child, all of us are worshipers. We are always worshiping something. Maybe it is a form of religion. Maybe it's a form of man-made religion. How do you know it's man-made religion? Because it's all about man. It's all about what we can do to earn our way to heaven. It's all about what we can do to try to be better. It's all about what we can do to be righteous enough or religious enough by our own effort. Ultimately, it's just a worship of ourselves. It's all about us. Then there's the secularism, which is the, the religion of our culture, right? What's the chief value of secularism? Autonomy. Human autonomy. I am autonomous over my body. I am autonomous over my sexuality. I am autonomous over even trying to be autonomous over my own death. Again, it's a worship of ourselves. We have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of ourselves and our own desires. I mean, just think about the things in life that we honor. Think about the things in life that give us purpose. Think of the things in life that, that we count on to sustain and provide meaning for us and comfort for us. The things that we worship, we make all about our pleasures. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your grades in school. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's your hobbies or entertainment or family, or friends, or other relationships? What is it that, that, that gives you purpose? What is the first thing that you think about when you get up in the morning, and what's the last thing you think about when you go to bed? What do you daydream about during the day? What, what so affects your emotions that you get angry if someone or something gets in, the, in your way of getting that thing? That's what you honor. That's what you give thanks to. That's what you glorify. That's what you worship. Everybody worships. It's just a question of who or what we worship, who or what we honor and give thanks to. Well, why is a, a error in worship? Why is false worship? Why is idolatrous worship so, such a serious event, offense to deserve wrath and hell? Well, it's not about the, the act itself, but it's about whom that offense is committed against. Look again there at verse 23. We have exchanged the worship of the immortal and incorruptible God. We've taken the glory of God's eternal nature and exchanged him for being less worthy than our temporal lusts. We have taken the glory of the God who created us and said, I'm going to trade him in as less valuable than his creation. 
We've taken the glory that all God is in his sovereignty and exchanged him and traded him out so that we can worship ourselves and our, as our own autonomous gods. We have rejected God in his glory. We have rebelled against God in his sovereignty. We have shamed God as less worthy than his creation. We have committed this offense against the, against the infinitely glorious God, which makes us guilty of an infinitely heinous transgression, which deserves an infinitely wrathful response. That's why we need good news. That's why we need the good news of the gospel. It's because we are all without excuse for our right, rightly refusal to, our refusal to rightly worship God. Do you see Paul's logic? I, I love Romans. I, I love the logic that you trace through here. He, Paul's logic is that God's wrath, his holy and just indignation against sin has been revealed because although God revealed himself in his creation, everyone, you and I, all of us, have suppressed this truth and unrighteousness. We've all rejected the truth that God should be honored and worshiped as the creator God. And we have instead rejected him. We've rejected God. We've shamed God. We've rebelled against God by exchanging him out, exchanging his glory to worship something else, often to just worship ourselves. That we would say we are more valuable, we are more worthy, we are more glorious objects of worship than the God of the universe. That's why we deserve God's wrath. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so good. That the, the message that though that is our condition, God has provided his saving righteousness that we need. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning again and, and you have not received this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, we, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here. That, that there, there can be some who would say, ah, this is not a great message. This is kind of a downer message. But actually, this is one of the best messages that we can hear. That God has revealed the truth about our situation, the bad news, because he had the good news already freely available. You have, that, you have this offered as a free gift to you this morning. That although we have sinned against the God who created us, although we deserve his wrath for exchanging his glory, for worshiping ourselves instead of him, God loves us. God loves you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross, to bear the wrath that we deserve. He took the punishment we deserve to pay that infinite debt for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, victoriously over sin and death, to prove and to vindicate that your sins can be forgiven, that, 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 that you can have this gift of eternal life, that you can have your sins forgiven and be reconciled with God if you would repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in him as Savior and Lord. That this gift is available not by trying to be good enough, but because of what he has already done to be good enough for you. So you can have this this morning. If, if, you don't un, if you've not received that gift of saving righteousness, you don't have to be in a condition under God's wrath anymore. He's provided his righteousness as a free gift. If you would like to know him how, you, you, you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. If you have questions, if you don't know about that, you, you, you want more questions answered, please don't leave without having your questions answered. Please talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary. We would love to answer your questions and tell you about this free gift through the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, this passage is not just for those who haven't believed. This passage is for us. It's written to the Christians in Rome, Christians like us, that we would remember who we were before Christ saved us. 
whether you were saved as a young child and you don't even remember your life before you got saved, or whether you got saved recently as an adult. We need to remember that we were all under God's wrath, deservingly. And we need to remember that we, like all humanity, were without excuse. We need to remember God's grace. We need to remember, as as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Why? Because they're under God's wrath. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, that's what he's getting at here in Romans 1, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That we can glory in that truth to remind us of the glory of the gospel, that it's the good news of the gospel that motivates us to Christian obedience, that Jesus Christ has delivered us from God's wrath, and by doing so, he's freed us from our addiction of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. See, the the answer to idolatry, of of, if you're saying, yeah, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping this in my life instead of God, the answer is not do better. The answer is get back to the gospel and see the glory of God so that, 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 of course, you won't, wouldn't exchange God for these lesser lusts. We turn from worshiping the idols of our hearts because of the good news of the gospel has opened our eyes to the glory of the creator that we would not exchange for anything. The gospel reminds us that we no longer live for ourselves. We're not autonomous, and we don't want to be autonomous because that's only a recipe for wrath. But we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, we don't live as autonomous beings. We reject that cultural narrative because we live for the worship of the one whose amazing grace saved us from our sin. We live in a way that our identity is now as those who have heard those good news, that good news that the king has pardoned you. We were guilty, but have been pardoned by the king of the universe. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame because we're in Christ. We were lost, but now are found. We were blind, but now we see. So, so that we would then be those who would live lives of worship because of who God is and his gospel. We live lives of worship of our wonderful, merciful Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to the glory of the, the wonderful, merciful Savior that you sent, your Son. And Lord, that, that, that we see clearly what we were saved from that we, like, like all men, Lord, were under your wrath, but now we are under grace. And so, Lord, we worship you in light of that. We, we would live in light of that to, to, to not exchange your glory for these lesser lusts because we've seen clearly who you are in all of your glory. And so we give you thanks and praise and our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.